Well, welcome to Church Finance FAQ. My name is Shelby Pratt, serving as your presenter today, and we are in room 109 at Upper Arlington High School. Uh, also serving as your host, so it makes it kind of interesting. I'm schizophrenic, I guess. Uh, for, the tho- for the benefit of those that are listening to this session via recording, please silence your cell phones and electronic devices this time. Be aware that coffee is available near the cafeteria lobby where the main sessions are being held and the restrooms can be found on each floor of the building. You can check your book map for that information. I serve as the finance director for the Ohio Ministry Network here in Columbus, Ohio. And if you ever need to reach me, you can do so at 614-396-0700, extension 146, 614-396-0700, extension 146. And my email address is shelby at ohioministry.net, shelby at ohioministry.net. So I am thrilled to see everybody today. And I hope that it has been a good day for you so far. What questions did you bring? Because if you didn't bring any, then we're going to have very little to talk about. All right. How will... This is a good question. We talked a little bit about it, and it's still some uncertainty. How will the repeal or the replacement of the Affordable Care Act affect church finance going forward? Well, unfortunately... Even with the possibility of it being repealed, probably something that will not go away is the headache that has been caused by all of the reporting requirements. <laughs> we talked about that a little bit in our session on, on health care uh, last time, and we'll talk about it, I'm sure, again in the next, next se- session. Um, you know, it, it, may make, it may make things for those who have not gone the route of a marketplace uh, health insurance plan, it may make things a little more competitive for them. Uh, I think probably more than affecting church finances going forward, it'll possibly affect personal finances going forward because, well, and and it could be in a positive way because I'm still trying to figure out how they're how they're paying for all of the tax credits and subsidies that are being offered to the individuals who do qualify for those with the Affordable Care Act, because I never really have understood how that was all being funded. So, you know, does that mean we're, our nation, our national, our debt counter will slow down a little bit or is it or not? <laughs> That's a good question. I really don't know. Um, but there is, there is for, for churches, there is a, a, a new provision, and I'll just mention it briefly, and if you're interested, you can come to the next se- session. Uh, a new thing that's called a Qualified Small Employer Health Reimbursement Arrangement. And I can't say that very many times very often. They call it a QSERA is the name of it. And it is kind of the rebirth of what once was available just as a, what they called a standalone health reimbursement arrangement, which just allowed for an, an employer to, with pre-tax dollars, pay for or reimburse uh, out-of-pocket medical expenses for employees. That went away with ACA in 2014. Employers were actually penalized, could have been penalized. They kind of backed off until June of 2014 and then in December of last year a new law was was 
enacted called the 21st Century Cures Act, which was primarily helping, it was focusing on the process that the FDA has in approving new medications and also funding medical research. And so it, they tacked on to the end of it this little bitty, none, the rest of it I couldn't have called a healthcare reform bill from the things it describes, but then it added this thing where it allowed for this thing called a QSERA. And it, and it basically is the rebirth of that of that health reimbursement arrangement that an employer is able to provide pre-tax dollars to an employee for out-of-pocket medical expenses, premiums, co-pays, um, just med- uh, medications or you know anything deductible had to be paid. Come on in. Uh, so uh, so that was brought into being as early as this year you could have set that up it's kind of no one knew about it i didn't know about it until january of this year um it's not too late you have nine days to set it up if you want to crazy as that sounds they made it available through the 13th of this month but i was talking about it in our session more of a as being an option possibly for next year because there are some reporting things you have to put in place so it is something to think about um which is a good thing. Uh, you have to be a small employer, which most of our churches are. That's not a concern because they don't have more than 50 full-time equivalent employees. And it assumes that you're not providing a group health plan. I mean, some, some small employers, we're considered technically a small employer because we have less than 50, um, but we provide a group health insurance plan. So we would not be able to do a QSERA because of that. So it assumes you're, not, you're a small employer and that you're not doing a group health plan, then that QSERA plan is now available to you. What other questions did you bring today? I told, I told you at the, in the description of the thing that if you don't bring anything, it's going to be very boring because this is, this is all about questions that you brought with you. You can. You mentioned a plan document that we're at the end of the last class and you referred to it as far as like the cafeteria plan. Mm-hmm. Now, is that just the document that the church board approves that yeah. turned into anybody other than... You have to have it if the IRS ever comes looking for it. Much like any other plan document, if, you have, if you're an employer that provides a retirement plan, even if it's just employee-only participation, to make that available to your employees, you have to have a document that governs how that plan behaves. The same as if you have a group health plan or if you have a dental plan or a vision plan, if you have a cafeteria plan, flexible spending account, all those things require governing documents, basically, that the company needs to maintain. And then I assume in this scenario, because it's an, that reimbursement arrangement, it would be that if the IRS ever had a question for the individual, they may want to come see that plan document. So it's just something you just you have to have on file that would be adopted by the by the board, yeah. Well, once you put it in place, not necessarily, because as long as it doesn't change, as long as it doesn't change. But if you change plans, like for a while a while back, there are some that you you do update if more frequently, but it's it's more if you make a change. So for instance, since I've been at the Network Resource Center, we shifted from having a health savings account to a health reimbursement arrangement with our group plan. So that required us to get a new plan document for for the health reimbursement that we didn't have before. I'm trying to remember if we updated that regularly. We may have actually done that on an annual basis. I honestly don't remember for sure. But the amount that, that is the cafeteria reimbursement has to be... 
<laughs> yeah, if you, but, yeah, because that, yeah, because that would be that could be a change if you if in year A this is the amount and in year B this is the amount, then yes, you would, because even with the Qsera plan, the employer has the prerogative of how much the benefit will be. There's a maximum you can't go over, but you could be less than that. And so if when year one they started here, and then in year two they wanted to go higher. Then in that, you'd have to do that. And actually, for that particular, with the new Q, uh, qualified em- small employer health reimbursement arrangement, that one actually does have, uh, well, you wouldn't probably plan- change the plan document unless you were changing that, but you do have to provide a, a notice to the employees every year for that particular plan. Yes? Two questions. Yep. The first one is, uh, is it possible that the insurance and it's possible that that's going to be repealed Will the QSERA be repealed because the ACA might be? Well, interestingly enough, for those for the qualified small employer health reimbursement arrangement was was enacted to reverse a part of how the Affordable Care Act had been implemented. So it it won't be as much of a target for being eliminated because it fixed something that they really broke. And because what they did, as I mentioned, when in 2014, when ACA plans were the law of the land, uh, they eliminated the ability for an employer to do the health reimbursement arrangement. And small employers across the nation were hurt by that because it, that's a, how a lot of them were providing some health benefits to their employees outside of a group health plan. And so they, the re, really the reason that the that that component of the whole act was done was to fix that to make it possible so i i because it formalized what had probably prior to the affordable care act may not have been as well defined i would be surprised if it goes away i mean because it it really helped it is a part of the no, no, it's it's a new it's a new piece of legislation external to ACA. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry. Okay, yeah, it was. No, it was it was it was attached to the 21st Century Cures Act. That was the that that was what was signed by President Obama in December 13th of last year. I I doubt it because it's not part of ACA, and it was really done to fix something that they broke with how the IRS was going to be handling. Um, employers tax um, penalties for for doing the reimbursement so they basically said no we're not going to let that happen we want to we want small employers to not be burdened by by this so i doubt that that piece will go away My yep um, I really didn't think anybody might actually be interested in doing this. Okay. Um, All right. Uh, So if an employer was interested in pursuing establishing Kucera, 
Um, again, working from the assumption, which is probably safe, that they're less than 50 full-time equivalents and not providing group health insurance already. Is that correct? Well, um, to get it set in place, the only, I did a, I did a, so it's not an endorsement. I'm just, I, I'm only relaying a piece, the piece of information that I found. There is, um, there is a company, CoreDocuments.com. They have, they have put together the the document that a that a an employer would need to be able to create a QSERA plan for their organization. I only found, this is the only one I found, so I'm not endorsing them, I'm just telling you what I found. Um, I'm hoping, and it won't be in time for this, this year, I'm hoping that a friend of mine who's a CPA, he he has a one of the companies that their firm operates is um, is called Payroll for Pastors, and they, they resource churches a good deal. And I listened to a webinar that he was on the other day, and he mentioned working on a, a document for this. He didn't say he was going to make it for free, but I'm hoping he'll let me have it for free. So, But it won't be in time for 2017. So if you're looking for something to try to set it in place, I have had other companies, not them that I can think of, but other companies do plan documents for us, like for our Section 125 plan. Uh, actually, our health insurance broker connected us to them, and that's actually not an exorbitant amount because you're getting a prefab. It's You, you basically are going to put in the dollar amounts because there are, and I don't want to go too far down unless you don't think you can be at the next session because we talk a lot more in detail. There are limits that you have to employ and put in place uh, as far as dollar amounts, and so I'm assuming that in this document you would have to populate some of those pieces of information. Um, so that needs to be done by... Uh, the 13th and then by the end of the month you have to notify all the eligible employees that it's a online pay the money to allow the document then your then your board then your board would need to say yes we are approving that our church now has a a qualified small employer health reimbursement arrangement yeah yeah it's 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 um what's the word I'm looking for not legwork, but it's the it's just the process, the formality of getting everything properly approved by your governing body. Do you know what the max is for this year? Four thousand nine hundred and fifty for employee cover if you're gonna just provide employee benefits. Ten thousand if you're going to provide employee and family. Key difference between this this and a group health insurance plan is you cannot provide different levels of benefit so it's going to be everyone has employee benefit or everyone has employee family now that may mean that the employee who has no dependents actually doesn't get as much benefit as the employee that has two or three dependents but you're providing the same because you define it as a percentage of how much you're going to contribute towards their towards their because they have to have they have to have insurance and so then you would say our, our amount is going to be based on 50, 75, 80, 100% of your premiums up to the maximum. And so whatever percentage is applied is applied to the employee only or the employee family. So if you've got someone who you're providing employee family, but this is just an employee, this person is not going to get as much benefit as the other three, but 
the IRS says they're the same because percentage-wise, you're providing the same. Uh, Derek. Please, that's fine. Um, I've talked to all about... Uh, at, at church, we have uh, kind of still on the tendency of a finance committee, if you will, mm-hmm. that uh, is a task to put together policies, finance policies for the church, and reports to the board, and then the board votes on it. Does a ministry network uh, list or suggestions for policies that would be good to uh, talk about, implement, and if so, do they maybe have templates that could help with the written portion of that? The question is, for the benefit of the listeners, does the Ohio Ministry Network have sample policies or a list of internal control processes for a church to consider? I have a a dated resource or two, and when I say dated, meaning it was done by my predecessor and I have not updated it. That doesn't mean it's bad, because not a whole lot of internal control standards uh, really would would change significantly. So yes, I could provide that. It's not one of the ones that I've made available online at, with the session, but I can definitely email that out. Or I'll try to remember you to remember add it to the, the upload of those documents. Um, the other alternative might be <clears throat> when I go, because one of the things that I do for our churches is I will visit a church and I'll do an internal control assessment for them. And, it, and it's basically a very large questionnaire. And I have two versions. I have a more exhaustive one and I have, and I have one that is um, kind of, actually I send it ahead of time to just get brains engaged a little bit. And Either one of those would be, if I was to say list, basically, if you can't say yes, then there is some kind of flag. It may be pink or it may be red. You know what I'm saying? Um, but So I could share those as well, and I wouldn't mind. Somebody actually, somebody actually asked for that from the first first Q&A session. Um, yeah, if, you know. if there's stuff out there, which I, you know, there's no need to yeah, and there are uh, churchlawandtax.com is uh, from Christianity Today, and that's um, uh, something that uh, Dr. Richard Hammer is one of the uh, chief editors. Chief editors there, uh, he he actually they have they have an internal controls resource. That's a really good that's a really good one that I could recommend. And Church Law and Tax. Dot com is just a great website. They have a couple of newsletters. One of them is a monthly newsletter uh, called the Church. Church. They've changed the name of it. Church Finance Today. It's a short, like four-page newsletter each month, and with that, they also provide like some other downloadable resources um, that's available. Then they have the church treasurer alert, which is about a 12-page 12 page, 12 page, uh, bi-monthly, every other month <clears throat> resource. And it, <clears throat> it will include a lot of 
uh, a lot of stuff. It, it does periodicals have stuff on inter internal controls, but it also just has developments, latest tax, you know, developments, latest court case rulings, and the potential impact on on the church. So those are good. But then they have a store. The Church Law and Tax site has a store, and that's where you can find those resources, like the Internal Control Guide, and uh, and several other resources available to you. I wrote that a little small, but now that I look at that, I'm sorry. The, the two documents you're talking about, the church finance today and the church treasurer alert, are those subscription types? Yeah, those are, those are a physically mailed subscription service to you. And you can also, when you, when you subscribe, you can then also get a, a, a web login so you can, you can actually download other resources that are not always sent out via uh, physical mail. And so it helps be able to go back in time and do some research on those occasionally. Other questions? Yeah, Ken. Come on. Okay, we, we uh, do a lot of uh, appreciation things for volunteers and that kind of stuff. More just gift cards or just you know, a twenty-five dollar gift card or a fifty-dollar gift card or something is is given to them in appreciation for periodically. Um, I guess I'm concerned about at what point does that number, that total spending get to the point where the IRS or somebody's going to be concerned about doing that kind of stuff and the justification and the document, you know, about, you know, what kind of documentation you should have for that. That's a really good question, actually. The question is, you know, when you're doing volunteer appreciation and you're wanting to provide a gift card of some kind, at what point do you need to be concerned about the IRS involvement or being able to report on that? Um, here's the interesting thing is I, I know that, that question comes out of the goodness and kindness of a church leader's heart, that they want to, they want to honor the people that have diligently served. And as soon as you hand that $25 gift card to somebody, you paid them, and it's taxable income to them. So then you have to look at, okay, well then, when would we have to report that? Now, so let, me, let me split it just a little bit, back up a little bit. First off, because this is not going to, this is probably going to muddy the waters more than anything, but it, that's okay. An employer church can never give a gift to one of its employees without it creating taxable income. So in the world of church pastor, church secretary, youth pastor, worship leader, any amount that you give them, need, regardless of what it is, needs to be processed in a way that it hits their tax documents at the end of the year. When you have volunteers, it becomes a little bit different because you say, well, they're not an employee. Well, that's true, but you pay some people who are not your employees that you still have to report on. They're called your vendors. you got Bob Jones that comes and mows your grass, and you got his brother Jim that comes and, and you know, plows your parking lot. As soon as you have paid an unincorporated entity, so it could even be such and such, such and such LLC or partnership or sole proprietor, they're not incorporated. And those are still in entities that are really just what they actually call them is a, a disregarded entity. Meaning, yeah, there may be a name of a doing business as, but it's Bob Jones that is the one receiving the money. And 
if it is not a, an incorporated entity, uh, then you have to provide a 1099 miscellaneous for any for any recipient that has received 600 or more. So that would be often where you would be able to legally not have to report the gift that was given to a volunteer. Assuming, number one, that you've kept track of how much you've given, and that's the harder part because most, you went, you went to Walmart or you went to wherever and you bought a bunch of gift cards, you, you know, you buy five or ten gift cards because you're going to give them a lot to individuals. Well, when you, when you record that, you know, hundred or two hundred dollar transaction at Walmart, it was payable to Walmart. And you probably didn't keep any record of who it was really for when it was really for these five or ten individuals. And um, so the challenge is the first one, recalling who it was that you did it for. And then as long as... As long as Bob Jones, who was not was who was not your vendor that cut your grass, but he's your he's your um, cafe coordinator, and you wanted to take care of him because he's always such a good about greeting everybody and taking care of the cafe on Sunday morning. And as long as he never receives from the church six hundred dollars or more, you don't have to report it. So you can you can give them gifts as long as you understand it is taxable income, but as long as I'm below this threshold, it's not reportable. Is the filing uh, using church funds for? Does it violate using church funds? Well, you would be able to, I think, make an make a pretty reasonable argument that it is being used for the furtherance of the ministries of the church. Um, again, it would come as a recurrence issue. You're talking a one-off scenario that maybe once or maybe twice a year this individual was was recognized versus this individual got something every month of the year. Mm, yeah, that's and honestly, they in that scenario they're most concerned. What you're what you're talking about there is you need to be concerned about it going, you know. Because you're using nonprofit resources for an individual, that's the concept called private inurement. It's hard to say, where it basically means that nonprofit resources can, other than reasonable compensation, cannot be used for the, any one individual person, any individual's personal benefit. Well, so in that scenario, kind of gives you the hint that the first piece, the first person they're going to worry about are the compensated individuals. They're gonna they're gonna look at, you know, the pastor who is the highest paid individual, and even in the world of for profit entities, a highly compensated individual has to make well over a hundred thousand dollars a year. So there's your five hundred even if it was five hundred dollars total that may have gone to somebody over the course of a year, it probably is not ever gonna be a red flag because it's not significant enough. Does that make sense? Good question though. Scenario where people are volunteering to bring refreshments and keep their receipts. Is it advisable that the church reimburse that or they do that on their own itemized tax? Is it advisable for the individual who provides food and beverages for life groups to be reimbursed or to submit it as a as an itemized deduction on their tax return? That is a really good question, and it will always be more favorable to the individual 
to do it as a reimbursement. Even if they do want to give it to the church, they will actually get more valuable, more value for their contribution by turning around, by taking the reimbursement from the church, putting it in the bank, and writing a check back to the church as a gift. Because, well, I mean, technically, that's kind of almost six of one, half a dozen of the other. But the problem is, if if they're you, you first have to make an assumption that they will be able to itemize deductions. The standard deduction is pretty large. I make, I'm, I'm not going to tell you the amount, but I, you know, between me and my wife's income, we make considerable amount of contra, you know, gifts. Um, we support three missionaries individually that we just have for a long, long time, in addition to our tithes and offering. And I cannot remember the last time I got to itemize my deductions. You know, if I was really concerned that I'm wanting to make sure I'm getting an itemized deduction, you know, or, or that I'm, that if I was a cheapskate and I would only give because I could get an itemized deduction, then I have to rethink my whole heart. But, um, you know, I just give because I'm supposed to give and that's what I believe we're supposed to do. So the individual may not qualify for an itemized deduction for that reimbursement. And so, if the, if the church is, has the wherewithal to do it, I would recommend that they that they um, do a reimbursement. Um, <coughs> excuse me, just because it's it's easier for them to get the benefit of the reimbursement than the possible benefit of a deduction. That's a good question, though. It's a good question, though. Anybody else? Please come on. All right, Tish, thank you. This is not finance. That's fine. But uh, how, I know that as far as the IRS rules, there's certain length of time you're supposed to keep certain tax records. Oh, yeah. But as far as church records, how long are you supposed to keep different? How long do you, what, what is the retention period for church records? That is a great question. I get asked that quite often. Um... It's not one of the documents that I uploaded, but I think I have one that, that Sarah Snavely in John Musgrave's office uh, provides, and I can add it uh, to the uploads. The best rule of thumb, there's two rules of thumb. Let me go the other way. There's two rules of thumb. The first one is corporate documents keep them forever. I mean, your articles of incorporation, anytime you have, uh, you know, you have amended your bylaws, your board meeting minutes, your annual meeting minutes, um, those things you pretty much want to keep forever. Now, that doesn't mean they have to be hard copy. I mean, big trend in moving to, you know, cloud-based storage facilities and, and even just server-based facilities, which I would, I would do both. I do both personally. I, um, I, use, I use personal, you know, like for my situation... And, and it parallels what we've what we've implemented at the office. I use personal finance software. I have it create an automatic backup every time I'm done, but that backup is stored in my Dropbox folder, which hits the cloud as soon as it's done. And so I've always got two copies of it. We do the same thing with our server at the office. So we have a hardware server, which has big storage capacity. It's connected to a couple of backup drives, which those backup drives are connected to the cloud. So, you know, uh, so... Keeping them keeping them digitally is is a, is possible in today's because 
data because hard drives had gotten so cheap. Um, but then, then backing them up elsewhere besides just that and to prevent loss of data due to a failure. But keeping most churches keep those records forever and ever and ever, and they just store them away, and it's all good. We're talking about just like the, the operational records. Uh, the best rule of thumb is seven years. There are probably one or two exceptions that I cannot think of off the top of my head that are ten years. But almost everything else, if you keep it seven years, you will keep it long enough. Um, actually, like if you use contribution envelopes and you have you know batch data that's regarding the contribution processing, that's actually three years. Um, but if you've kept it seven, you're okay. Now, and so it's it's easier to just remember seven than have to remember all the different ones that that may be less than that. Uh, but again, I'll try to add that. And since since uh, I mentioned that, I'm not sure everybody was in the room when I when I showed it earlier, if you are unaware, one of the things that's available with SCED is if you go to both the first session for the church Q&A that we did, where is it? There it is. You'll see that it has, well, you see two of them, but you also see eight more files. So there are actually... So there's 10 that are attached to the first Q&A session, and there are two more files that are attached to this session. So there's a total of 12. And I'll try to remember to add that records retention one and, and um, maybe the list, Derek, that you had asked about. I'll try to uh, remember to attach that one. Um, I don't know, that one I might not, because that, that one needs to be talked about a little bit. Um, but So you can download all of these. Somebody actually asked me if, before they sent me a Facebook message. Says, hey, I'm going to be in your class. I wonder if you have a sample chart of accounts. And I said, yeah, I'm going to attach it to my class. So, so there's, you can download a sample chart of accounts. That is the chart of accounts that I built when I was a church administrator in, 19, in 2000. Uh, it is the same chart of accounts that I used in a, form, a little bit different form when my wife and I started our church a year and a half ago. And you, I'm using it right now. Um, this is you can't read that, can you? Let me show it to you. I'll show you. I'll just show you the actual files, so you can maybe see the names a little bit better. Oh, where did it, my folder go? There it is. Oh, those got tiny. Oh my goodness, why is that so tiny? Okay. The first one, the first one is something I created as a church administrator. You can't read it too well. It's well. This is actually no. This comes from AG Financial. This is just a budget template that AG Financial had available for download on their site. I have never used that, but it does look like it's pretty pretty decent. Do that. This is an AC, uh, AG Financial church finance guide. So this would be a, a mini. Uh, this might actually help you, Derek. This is a. This is a compact internal control guide. It's available for download. Already out there. This is an E... I, call, I called it the E-Budget Request. I landed as a church administrator at First Assembly of God in Raleigh, North Carolina in 1999. They had never had a church administrator before, which was great for them because I had never been a church administrator before. So I was a greenhorn, and they took a chance on a greenhorn. 
I had been at, I had gone to Central Bible College. I graduated with a Bible, a double Bible major, which is weird, but I I started as a youth ministry major and changed to Christian education, and then I changed to just basically, I took twice as many Bible classes as I had to, um, which is odd because then I did not become a pastor, like full-time, like a senior pastor. I still haven't. I became a youth pastor. I thought I was going to be a youth pastor for the rest of my life. You know what happened? I became a youth pastor, and I figured that's not what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> but it was while I was, well, for two years prior and four years during, I worked in credit unions. So in the banking world, say banking world, I, finance, to say finance is a little bit of a stretch, so we'll go with banking. Um, and then when I landed as a church, as, as a youth pastor, my first full-time ministry experience, I ended up doing all of the books for this little church. I, I've discovered that they had missed $5,000 in their banks. And I told them, hey, you guys have $5,000 more than you thought you had. They were like, thought I was the best thing since sliced bread. Um, I, I was literally doing payroll by hand. I went to Staples and I bought a payroll journal and I got the printed guide from the IRS office and I did the manual withholdings and yeah, it was awesome. And so that's how I kind of think, you know what? Maybe I'm maybe made to be more of a church administrator, but I didn't have a degree that said I could do the work. And they paid me accordingly <laughs> when I started as a church administrator. Um, it was I got to tell you this since I went there. So I had these interview interview process with the pastor and with the new church treasurer, with the former church treasurer, with the pastor again. So like three or four different interviews to the process. And he calls me up one day. It's a Wednesday. He said, hey, could you, we lived about 30 minutes away from Raleigh at the time. Could you come meet me uh, at Denny's after church tonight so I can talk to you? And I said, sure, I'll be glad to, Pastor. And we sat down. And every time we had talked with every person that I talked with, I kept getting accounting questions. Oh, just accounting questions. I do not, I, I highly do not recommend to do what I did. So we sat down at the table and we start talking, and he starts asking me, and he starts asking me accounting questions. And I looked across the table at him. I said, Pastor Stewart, I said, I really don't want to answer any more accounting questions. I said, I believe I can do this job. I said, there's only one way we're going to know for sure. And I'm sitting here thinking, I am so not getting this job. <laughs> and a week and uh, the next, and we were at the point where we were, we were ready to make, like, physically move back across the country, back to Missouri from North Carolina. And we had, we had done what you're not supposed to do, tried to put God in a box, you know, and said, God, if we don't have anything by this date, well, that was four days prior to that date, I got the job offer. And so that's how I became a church administrator. I landed at First Assembly in North Carolina and in May. And so about the September time frame, I started talking about the budgeting for the next year. Well, what have you guys historically done? Well, we've never really done that. We just, whatever we did last year, we kind of give them the same thing again the next year. And I was like, we're not going to do that. I said, that doesn't work for me. And they, but the challenge is, one of the things that, even as someone who was now getting into the church administration world, I had not gone to school to learn any of it. I was literally learning on the job. And so you can think that even less for those that are our youth pastor and our children's pastor and our worship leader who came from just 
you know, he didn't go to Bible college even. He went to the Manhattan School of the Arts. I mean, that's a gifted individual, but not in that regard, you know, had gone to finance in any, any stretch. So I created what I call the e-budget request as a spreadsheet to help that department leader. It's not for the church at large because it's, it's, it's narrowly focused for a department to use to help them be able to plan where they're not trying, they not trying to think big picture about what they need, but okay, you're the youth pastor, you're going to have youth camps. You're going to have how many people that are going to start paying for youth camp, and, and of course here in Ohio, for those that are invo- at all involved, we, we publish that information about a year in advance as to how much camp is going to cost. And so it's like they have it available, so okay, when do you think that money's going to come in? When do you think the money's going to go out? And I let them think of it in little bricks instead of big pieces and they were able to say well and you know we'll probably get this much in in april and may and and so this thing has 10 revenue accounts and 15 expense accounts which for most departments that's probably enough they don't have to use them all they may only use one of each but it's designed where then it populates another spreadsheet that tells the church leadership how much the youth ministry is going to cost the church this year and it was just absolutely wonderful. So I share that with everybody that I can share it with. Uh, the next thing is, a, is an article about housing allowance that I wrote. Uh, just to try to help explain for those that may not understand how that works for a minister and what that is. Um, what a minister puts into it. The tax implications of the housing allowance. Uh, people, unfortunately, sometimes, and I you know, tread carefully a little bit here, but sometimes lay leaders in the church don't really understand what the housing allowance is and what its significance is and they they uh, they may understand that it's a tax-free housing allowance it is not subject to income taxes but it's actually subject to worse tax where it's subject to self-employment taxes and so that talks about that a little bit then the next two documents the declaration form on the far end that's where a minister would estimate the expenses that they're going to have and ask then they submit that to the church to the board for for as a recommendation for what they need as a housing allowance and then this document is a housing resolution and that's the one without you don't have to have that to have a housing allowance you cannot have a housing allowance with this even if you filled one of those out it means nothing until the board actually approves it and so this is a template that is for that. What you can't see here, this tiny little Word document, and these two are Word documents, so you can edit them for your use. And this, of course, is editable for your use. Um, This says, what you can't read, offering count procedures. A friend of mine was planting a church in North Carolina. We had already left, um, moved away, but he had called and said, hey, we're getting ready to start our church plant. I really need some help, you know, trying to train my people on counting the offering, and can you help me? They were going to meet in a hotel as, a, you know, they weren't having a permanent facility, so it was going to be very mobile. So they needed to count the offering then and be done with it. So I wrote just a simple procedure on how to count the offering. You wouldn't think it would be that hard, but you just sometimes don't think of all the intricate pieces that might need to go with that. So that one's there. The next thing to it is the... Is, this references that because that's an offering count sheet. So it's a tally sheet that you can use to record each denomination of bill and coin, total of checks, has a place to, to staple a copy of the calculator tape if you do that. 
on the back it has a place to do all of your designations between general between missions and building and and other designations you may have then the next one is my sample chart of accounts that's that's the one that i was mentioning earlier that i that i actually built when i was at the church in north carolina and i'm using now for our church plant uh, the next one is another article I wrote on self-employment tax assistance. Um, much like the housing allowance that is, set, is not subject to income taxes, it is subject to self-employment taxes because ministers are considered self-employed in regards to Social Security and Medicare. So they actually have a larger tax bill because a regular employee shares the burden of Social Security and Medicare with an employer. Employer pays half employee pays half. So if you're if you're any working anywhere that you're not a ministry employee, you you share that burden and the employer just they understand they're going to pay that cost. Well, the burden for a minister goes up because of their because of their status, they have to pay social security and medicare on their on the housing allowance. I was afraid of this. Um, but the church is able to provide assistance to help offset that if they desire to do so. And again, because the church is already for any custodial staff or Christian school teacher or, or uh, administrative assistant, anyone that's not a minister, they're already paying for half of it. So assuming that the salary levels are normalized, I mean reasonable, then really... The well, let's let's trigger. Let, let me give you an example. I am a minister, but they have not had a minister in this position, the finance director for the Ohio Ministry Network, for a number. I mean, it's, I'm talk, I think decades, a couple of decades, years from whenever, from now, whenever. I'm no longer here. If they hire a non-minister, they will actually be paying out of pocket from the company resources more for that individual than they're paying for me because one of the things we understand as ministers that we are responsible for paying all of our self-employment tax but if they bring in a non-minister into my role and they pay him the same salary i'm making they'll actually be paying more in taxes because they're not paying any self-employment for me right now but a church can they can choose to do so and so i wrote an article that just kind of helps explain the rationale behind that and it actually gives you that example of you know two individuals with the same salary and what that really means for the non-minister employee and the minister employee and and that's proven helpful to some folks this is a self-employment tax calculator this spreadsheet right here. This is what I use every year for my, and then for any of our staff in our office that want to know how much they should have because the, because the way that we are structured, I am responsible for paying all of my tax burden liability. I, I ask my employer, I ask the office to withhold money from my paycheck. And your ministers, your pastors can do the same thing. And but they always say, well, how much? I, when I was with, I worked for AG Financial in their retirement services for a while, uh, about three years, and that was a question I got a lot. Well, I don't know how much to pay in self-employment taxes, and so I I built that calculator just to help me. And 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 but I didn't do it until one year when I miscalculated, 
and I ended up owing the IRS $1,500 one year, and I thought, that, I thought my life was over because I was going to be in a payment plan for five years with the IRS, and I, I was, it was just awful. And so I said, that will never happen again. And so I, I built this calculator so that every year I have enough taken out. Then this one is really interesting. Um, this one I use in my office now every year when it comes to budget time. And for the first time ever, the other day, I actually sent it to a church. I hadn't ever made it available because it's, well, let me say, you can already tell from the screenshot, the rows there, that's only five years of a 12-year spreadsheet that I built. <laughs> I'm a little, I went a little OCD on this one. and But I use that to, to estimate my unrestricted revenues. So my general fund offerings that are going to come in from our churches, that are going to come in from ministers, I wanted to be able to get an idea of, of what that was going to be. So I built a spreadsheet that looks at a, up to a 12 years worth of history to help determine what I should think of as a reasonable budget for the future year as I'm planning. And uh, so that was probably not for the faint of heart, but I put it out there anyway. So... So, uh, enough talk about that, but questions now. With the self-employment things that you talked about, is there still a provision for ministers to opt out of Social Security? Yes. Great question. Can a minister still opt out of Social Security? Yes, there is. There are some steps to go through. There are a couple of forms that have to be filed. Uh, one of them actually has to go be signed off uh, through through. If the person is affiliated with a denomination, uh, they have to fill that out. Uh, the official stance of the Assemblies of God is that we don't, but that doesn't mean you can't do it. You just have to let your denomination uh, know that that's the case, and then you get a confirmation back uh, from that. And a key point is that it only applies to ministry income. So if that minister happens to be bivocational and they work uh, somewhere else on a regular basis, that would still be subject to Social Security and Medicare with the employer uh, because it's not ministry-related income. That's a good question. Does that eliminate the self-employment tax based on housing? Yes. Yeah, if you opt out. Now, here's, 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 the, here's the couple of things to keep in mind. If, you're, if a minister wants to opt out of Social Security, they have to do so before they file their taxes for their second year of ministry income over $400. It's pretty, you know, so it's kind of weird. So it's not immediate. You've got some time to think about it. But in the, in, after you have had two years in which you've earned $400 or more in ministry income, that's, the, that's your deciding point at which are you going to opt out or are you going to stay in. That's one point. Um, there, there have been three times in history that they've actually opened the window back up for people to opt back in that opted out, uh, but it hasn't been since about 2002. Um, I used to get that. That was another common question when I would talk to young youth pastors when I was traveling with the retirement services. Hey, my pastors told me I should opt out of out of Social Security. Uh, what do you think? And I would say, well, first keep in mind, you're you're not opting out of paying taxes. You're opting out of benefiting from social insurance, and you have to have a religious objection to receiving assistance 
from, from federal insurance. You have to be religiously opposed to it. I'm not saying you're not. I'm not saying you can't be. But that's, that's the criteria. Don't think, I don't want to pay taxes. That's not a valid way to do it. And I said, I said you just got out of college, right? Yeah, I just got out of college. Did you, by chance, take any federal student loans? Well, of course I did. I wouldn't have been able to pay for school any other way. I said, I think you would have a hard time convincing anyone that you are opposed to receiving federal insurance assistance when you were more than willing to take their loan money for your education. And they're like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. And I was like, yeah, kind of figured that. So um, just some, some interesting things to keep in mind. Um, challenge that I witnessed as a retirement planner and the reason that there is a thing called the AG Aged Minister's Assistance is that we have so many ministers who are in poverty in retirement because they, they opted out of Social Security and had... Now, Social Security was never intended to provide a, all of your needs in retirement, but it, but it, is, it is intended, and will it be there? I'm at the point, I honestly don't care. It will or it won't. The law says I have to pay the tax. So I'm paying the tax. But it was never intended to provide a, like the majority of your retirement needs anyway. Um, but the problem that people forget is when you opt out of Social Security, you opt out of Medicare. And that's actually the bigger concern than what you lost in benefit from Social Security because then you are self-funded for everything at the time of life when you are likely having the most medical needs to take care of. So I've, it always just when I, when I was in the college environment with one of our colleges, uh, there were two individuals that had opted out. And it just oh, it broke my heart. It broke my heart. Because the point is, if you're going to opt out, that's fine, but then save the money. It's not about avoiding having to pay tax. It's all about planning for the future. So either you're going to have some Social Security benefits, or you need to put all that money into a retirement plan so it will help you pay for all those medical needs that you're going to have later on. Sorry. I'm a, I think I hopped up on a soapbox that I didn't mean to get on. Sorry. Yes, Deb. What, what happens to the pastor who opted out and then ends up not being a pastor anymore? Again, the opt-out is only in... So what happens for the minister who leaves the ministry and had opted out and is now back in regular employment? The opt-out is only for ministry-related income. You can't opt out for all, for all income. It's only, when, only for that income because, because a person is only considered a mini, uh, self-employed for tax purposes in regards to their ministry-related income. So you can only opt out of that tax for ministry-related income. So if they go to work, you know, for a for a, a retailer, or they go to work in an office environment somewhere, um, you know, the old, the old, you know, because I, I can say this because I do know, I do know of this person, the car, used car salesman. That's regular employee income. They're going to they're gonna share that burden with, with the employer. If they happen to start their own business, they will have to pay self-employment taxes because it's only because it's ministry-related income that, that they can opt out on. And then they would get back into that again. Yeah. We'll see. Oh, my goodness. I suppose so. 
because it is just it is just during the time of the because you you lost your benefits the social security benefits would be adversely impacted but uh yeah theoretically you'd be able to enroll in medicare yeah now some some individuals you know they they're bivocational as pastors for a long time and they opted out as minister, but because they kept working a, a secular job, or for lack of a better word, they still are accruing the credits that you need to get Social Security benefits. They may, they may just not be as high because you've had less income that was, that was being calculated for Social Security purposes. Um, so you could still get both. Or there are ministers who, uh, it's very common these days that people are coming out of the professional world into ministry and they've already worked their their you need 10 years because you get 40 credits and you need one credit per quarter per year or or one credit per quarter so you need you need 10 years of quarters uh, so to get you know any benefit and then they look at your 10 highest when they're determining their the benefit i think it's 10 highest maybe it's 30 or is it 40 and you get one per year been a long time since I looked at my social security statement I get in the mail. Use the last 10 years. What other questions do you have? Do you have a retirement plan template or sample? A retirement plan template or sample for pastors? No, I don't because we just utilize the one that AG Financial provides through the Minister's Benefit Association and they will provide it for you. What's that? Actually, no. That was that was a budget document there. But if you if you if you uh, utilize the AG Financial Retirement Services, they can get you a copy of that. Because actually, the employer has one on file for you somewhere, or they should. They should. They should. That's a church uh, something that should be had. They can provide that for you. It wasn't as much of a concern a while back, but I remember shortly after I came to the Network Resource Center that we had a mailing that they sent us because they. It was there was some documentation requirements that had been set in place for uh, by the government for retirement plans, and so you had to have an official plan document in place. And so I remember doing that for the office. But so they would have one for you at the at AG Financial that you can that you can access. Ah, you're wondering what those are. Those were from our first Q&A session. Uh, VancoPayments.com. That is one of many, many, many options uh, for online giving. Um, I I recommend them for a couple of reasons, but they are the preferred provider of the software vendor that we use at the Network Resource Center and for the church software that I use for my church because they're the same company but different software. Um, but they can be used by any church that wants to use them. Uh, they offer text-based giving that is included when you use them. Um, well, I'm going to throw that out there and, and hope that that's true. It, it is for me. I'm, I'm assuming that is for all of their clients whether or not they use the software that I use. I would assume it's the same. Um, they're... they're very speedy turnaround. When we first started online giving in my office, we were using a different merchant provider. And it was not uncommon for credit card funds to take a minimum of four days to hit my bank. And there were sometimes seven days before electronic check funds would hit my bank. We made the switch at the end of 2014, I believe, December 2013. We made the switch 
uh, no, end of, yeah, December 2014, we made the switch from the previous company to Vanco, and I remember being astounded when I looked at the bank statement and realized that credit cards took never more than two business days later, sometimes the next business day, but never more than the second business day, and, and check electronic checks the, the second or third business day. I mean, it was like night and day difference. Um, <clears throat> just amazing. So that's what Vanco Payments is. No, this is strictly this is strictly incoming. Um, a lot of a lot of uh, banks. If you have a commercial bank account, you can look into what they may have available. Uh, my our church accounts are with PNC, and uh, we just engaged one of the one of the services they make available, which allows us to initiate payments, and we can. And if the the recipient is a is someone that is not already in the system. They actually have a mechanism where I can invite them in, to become a, an electronic payment recipient, so that then they receive their funds much faster and it's more secure. But if not, then it just sends them a much like an online bill payment check. It'll send them a check if they're not an electronic payment recipient. But it, it's kind of a neat neat service that allows me to let them get the, get it that way if we want to if they want to yes we use banco payments have been extremely happy with them um, what software do you use what company what for your church management power church. use power church so they're using it independent of the software so do you have text-based giving with them we haven't elected that but it's available it's available but they also just came out with their kiosk that can sit in your lobby and um, person can take their debit or their card yeah. and it all comes on the same report unlike when we had squarespace and that i had yeah. to do two things yeah very user friendly very easy to use the <clears throat> person making their online giving we're very happy well our time is up it has been my pleasure i felt like i talked way too much and i apologize for that and answer more. I talk too much and less instead of answering questions, but I hope that it was valuable to you. Again, if you're going to look at those documents to download, make sure you look at both sessions because there are doc- documents attached to both sessions of the Q and A. Hope you all have a wonderful day. Thank you so much.